In the summer of 1996, George Magazine recognized her as one of the top 20 political women in the nation. The Claire Booth Luce Policy Institute named Bay Buchanan the 2007 Woman of the Year. And again in 2011, she was named the, by the Institute as one of the 10 most influential conservative women in America. Presently, she is the president of the American Cause, an educational foundation dedicated to advancing traditional conservative issues. In addition, she frequently speaks on college campuses and at student conventions about leadership and conservative principles, and can often be seen on television doing the same. Please help me welcome Miss Bay Buchanan. Thanks very much, and good afternoon, ladies. Uh, always a great pleasure to speak to young people. I'm going to try to regulate this, but if you can't hear, or if it gets a little bit crazy, let me know, all right? I'm not used to this, all these mics here. Um, all right, I, I've been asked to speak a little bit about leadership, which is one of my favorite topics. I do love speaking to young people. Um, a great inspiration, and you are a great inspiration to me, as I tell many of my friends. Have great hope in the future because I've met it, and it's it's very, very impressive, especially you young conservatives on campuses. Um, what I would like to talk about is really about you, why you're here, what, what, what are you trying to gain, why did you sign up for this conference, for instance, why did you come back to Washington to do an internship, and, and I, I understand being in politics all my years, it is one of the most exciting things, uh, occupations you can have. Uh, to, I cannot tell you how much, how thrilled I was to be involved in, in presidential politics all of these years. I've never regretted it, and there's been so many incredible moments. It's a terrific way to, to um, dedicate, it's a diff great cause in which to be involved. I, I, I believe some of you consider yourselves conservatives, possibly, and, and want to learn more about this movement, this great movement of ours. You, you may be looking for experience, something to add to that resume that, uh, and expose yourselves to people who make policy. You know, want, want to maybe yourselves one day be involved in some kind of policy. But I would like to think also that each and every one of you would, in, would like to be a leader one day, to be some kind of leader. You hear that people in this town are leaders. Uh, the media will often say leaders in Washington, leaders in your state capital, leaders here. As if elected officials uh, and, and people in the administration are real leaders. I suggest to you that our Congress of the United States are not leaders. There are individuals who are fantastic leaders, but there are many who will just go with the flow, just try to keep happy, keep people happy, don't want to get into any kind of controversy. Controversy tends to set people one way or the other. If you're for one side, maybe the electorate will, will start pulling away from you, and you want to keep everybody together, everybody happy in order to be reelected. Uh, it, it is, I have been astounded at hardcore conservatives on the Hill, people who believe as I do that small government is the single most important thing in, as a principle in Washington, that you really have to believe uh, that the country would be better if our government was smaller. Uh, and yet, when the President of the United States called them, President Bush, and asked them to vote for an entitlement program, which would have dramatically increased, and did, the size of government. Entitlement is just the worst imaginable, because uncontrolled spending into the future, totally uncontrolled. And, and so, as a conservative, I knew from this, this high, 
it was a really bad thing, as my father and brothers would argue about this. And yet, if these conservative congressmen had adamantly said no to the President of the United States, this is an entitlement program that you are asking us to vote for. You want us to vote for this uh, Part D Medicare bill. That will, that's an entitlement. We're opposed to entitlements. It's bad for my children. It's bad for the, the future of the nation. And, and they didn't. They voted for it. And I asked them, why would you do that? How could you possibly have voted for entitlement? It's not even a, a close call. And, and these were not moderates. These were people who believed as I did. And they said, because the president called me. They are not leaders. Their vote was then in the hands of the president. Anytime he needed their vote on any bill, all he needed to do is call him up. They explained to me the president was on the line. And I said, couldn't you say to him, look, Mr. President, I agree with you. You did a terrific job on the war. You did a great job here. I voted for you X number of times. But this one, you got to know this one's wrong. And, and I think maybe you want to reconsider this. This is not something you can ask me possibly to. It goes against everything I believe. That's leadership, having that kind of courage, that, that feeling of certainty about what you believe and who you are and how no one can, can ask you to go against all that you are and believe. No one can ask you to do that. And, and the president would have respected it, but instead they folded. That is what America is missing today, is more and more people who do know who they are, what they represent, who they represent, and are willing to be bold and fight for those things. And you don't get there by just getting elected. And in fact, those individuals, and the men and women in, in Congress, most of them came with all the right intentions to make a difference. They had some real experience in life. Maybe they, they understood the educational system and wanted to make a difference there. Maybe they understood some other aspect of government they were unhappy with and wanted to change things in Washington. But when they came back, the most important thing became staying in Washington, keeping their job. So they had to keep the hierarchy in the party happy. All right? We need real leaders if we are going to get this country turned around. And the American people are ready for it. What I want to suggest to you that I'm hoping that you recognize that you can be a leader, that you can be somebody who influences others. And that that should be your goal in life, to have a cause bigger than yourself, something that's more important to you than, than what job you have or, or uh, what you're going to be doing this weekend. It's more important because it's, it's about, it, it represents who you are. How do you make certain that when the someone calls you, you don't fold because that someone is so important to you, you don't want to offend them, or you want to, whatever it is. You don't want to be intimidated to taking action that is different than what you believe. It's all about what political correctness did. Political correctness, the effort by the left, was to make you feel uncomfortable taking certain positions. Then they, they won. So you don't want to talk about illegal immigration because you'll offend people. They'll call you a racist. And, and you don't want to be done that. You don't want people to think about you in such awful, awful terms. So you just don't talk about it. That's what we did for years. That's what social conservatives did. It was too controversial, so many of those issues. So they just backed away. Now let's talk about taxes. Everybody likes to cut taxes. That's a safe area. Well, you don't change the country when you're afraid to talk about serious issues that Americans are facing every day. You need true leadership. This is what I want to talk to you about. How do you become that? How can you, as a young person who would 
who would inspire to be someone who makes a difference. Maybe you're not going to run for elected office. That's okay. You don't have to run for elected office to be a leader. You may want to be a leader in your own family, in your community, amongst your colleagues at work, and you can be. Every one of you can be and should be. George Washington made it very clear. He said, the sacred fire of liberty will be, is in the hands of the American people. It's in their hands. That's how we're going to keep it. And he didn't talk about elected officials or in the hands of the rich and famous or those who have condos and cars and good jobs. He said, American people. And you are to whom he was speaking. You have a responsibility here. We have enormous blessings by being American citizens. But you also have responsibilities. And one of it is to decide what you think is important. What, what direction should the country go in? And then start influencing others. And it could be on a small scale, but if we all took that responsibility and, and moved our influences among those around us, you have no idea the difference it makes. Let me give you an example of how you do this. I need a water. Thank you. Is that open? Thank you. Um, I, I am a, I am passionate about many issues, not all of them. So the first thing you have to do is pick an issue that you feel some passion about. You might not be totally involved, but it's something that you respond to when you hear about it. I am passionate about immigration. I'm a passionate free trader, fair trader. I am not a fair, free trader, and some of my conservative friends always get bonkers about that. But I now have President of the United States degrees with me. So that works well. Um, so it, I, these are things I'm passionate about, but I'm not going to choose that one to talk about. I'm going to talk about life. I am passionate pro-lifer. I got there by studying the issue, by learning about both sides, by listening to the other side and realizing they are so wrong, by meeting people who've had abortions and recognize the terrible, terrible uh, consequences of this. And, and I became closer and closer to recognizing that the unborn needs a voice, and I have chosen to be a voice any time. Now, you don't have to be pro-life. This is an example. Your issue could be immigration. It could be, it could be Social Security. What's going to happen to Social Security? It, 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 there's all the, it could be guns. There's lots of issues that could be the war. Should we have troops in the Middle East or not? I'll have a debate with you on that any day. Okay, there's a lot of issues out there. So, pick one that you kind of been looking at, you start with one. You move to two as quickly as you're comfortable. But the key is to start debating. If you claim you're pro-life, go find some pro-choicers. Don't be talking amongst pro-lifers. Oh, I'll nod our head, you know. Find a pro-choicer and say, how can you possibly support a policy that takes the life of a child every time? And in fact, there's two victims every time. The mother as well. Terrible consequences for her. Often, often. So, and they're going to look at you and say, are you telling me that you support a 14-year-old being forced to have a baby when she's been raped by her dad? Are you telling me that that's where you're going? And you're going to say, eh, I don't know if I support that policy. That one's, that's their best argument. You know, that's not an easy one to defend. That's their best argument. But it doesn't mean that they're right. It means you need to think it through and see what you believe. If you come to me, I can say very confidently, I'm not picking and choosing who's living and dying. I have never been given that authority. So I fight for all unborn children. That's who I am. But then there's others, very good, very good conservatives who say, no, you have to make an exception for uh, rape and incest. 
And I say, well, that's, that, is that who you are? And I'll make my argument back and forth. And they say, no, no, I'm holding a tough. Well, good. Now you know what you believe. Not what your mom or dad or teachers or me or anyone. What do you believe is what we're trying to get at here? So when you're confident of what you believe, you go back again and you find some pro-choicers and you throw that out. Now you have an answer. You say, you know, that's a very good argument. I happen to agree with you. I think there should be an exception. Or I don't agree with you. I don't think we can pick and choose. Whatever is your position, you make it clear and you say, but let's go on to another one. How about viability? Do you believe a child who is viable outside the womb's life should be taken? Well, what's this? And, and you know, you start having this dialogue. Now, you want to get to the position where you can go into a classroom, any classroom, because now you know where you stand. You've looked at it. You might have even talked to or done some research on women who've testified, who've had abortions, the consequences. Get to know a little bit more about it. And, and then you say, you're ready. You think you're ready. I'm a pro-lifer. I'm going to defend the unborn. And you're in a classroom, and you wait for this opportunity. I don't care if it's math class. And somebody says, do you see that march in Washington, all those crazy 100,000 people down there? They want to take our rights away, you know? That's your chance. And you've already come up with a little statement you're going to make, because you've got 25 kids in that class who are going about to be pounce on you. And you say, I've got to tell you, I'm with them. Childish life is at stake here. How can you be supportive of that? Say it with passion. It might be as short a statement as you can, your best argument. And they're going to turn on you. And they're going to look at you and they're going to say, "What? you don't defend the right of women? Do you know how much years we fought for this? They're going to make arguments for the right of a woman to have abortion. That's the pro-choice side. So you've got to expect them to be passionate. And they're going to come after you. And you are going to feel uncomfortable because the numbers in most of the schools you're in are overwhelmingly pro-choice, all right? But you have to hear from them. You have to be ready to listen to them. You have to feel so uncomfortable, and you will, and you want to say, ah, I wish I'd never said anything. I don't, you know, I'm pro-life, but I'm not going to say it to anyone. Well, you're not saving lives. That's not leadership. That's being, okay, I'm going to go back into this closet here and take my position and keep it to me. If you want to influence others, then you have to be passionate about what you believe, so passionate that you want to tell your colleagues, you want to tell your roommate. You, want, you know she disagrees, but you can say, let me make my point and see what you think, you know? Bounce some ideas. Get there. Get where you feel uncomfortable. People looking at you, making uh, nasty remarks about you. You want to get there. Why? Because you'll realize you're not ready. Do you know how many times I've had to have them come after me again and again and again, calling me racist for my positions again on national television, dismissing me as a mean-spirited, angry person? And I keep doing it now. I'm like, yeah, okay. Do you want to make a statement that's about your side or not? Or are we just going to just do this ad hominem stuff? You know, you just don't care. I answered a racist. You know, what do I care you, what you call me? I know I'm not. And I'm not going to be afraid. I'm not going to have you intimidate me. I'm not going to have anyone tell me what I can and cannot say and how I can present my argument. I'm an American. One of the greatest blessings we have is that we do have freedom of speech. We can make our points. And you best use it because that's what sets you apart. Who are you? Are you just a name? When people talk about me, I suggest they are going to say, oh, she's a conservative activist. She's a pro-lifer. She's fought for some crazy candidates on the far right. You know, that's who I am. I, I'm, I represent a cause. I represent people when I'm on television. And when I start feeling that feedback, that negative feedback, I say, stay positive. You represent millions of people who don't have a voice.
whether it be the unborn, whether it be Republicans or Democrats, whether it be people out of jobs and are wondering why, why are they sending our jobs overseas? People who are suffering from the consequences of illegal immigration. These are the people I represent. That's what gives me passion. That's what wants me to just change opinion here, opinion there. But if you're not sharing that, then what are you? Who are you? We are known by what we believe. So you have to get so comfortable with who you are, what you believe, that you can influence others. You can go to work and just say, you know, I know you guys are a bunch of liberals here, but, and laugh and say, but you got it all wrong. And by the way, our guy won. Take it easy, you know, just, uh, just have a little fun. And they're gonna laugh and they're gonna come in the next four years and say, you got lost. Yeah, you did, but we're coming back. You know what I mean? You know, this is, uh, I debate liberals all the time and they are my friends. So what is the big deal? But you have to be willing to say it. And the only way you get there is by debating others and having them come back to you, come back to you, come back to you. My experience with the liberals, is you come back two times and you got them because they don't have three rounds in them. They got a couple good rounds. They got a couple good strong positions first time out, second time out, but now you know them. And, and, and how many times have I been on national television, had my own show, the liberal makes a strong position. I remember that one time it was guns. And I thought, oh, whoa, it sounded like a very strong position. I don't know. And I would just change the topic knowing he was winning this round. Okay, go home, call my brother. You know, they, this, what do you say when they say that? That's a very strong position. He goes, yes, it's the best. However, I think this makes it ours stronger because it's a higher road. And so I listen and think about it. I think, yep, he's right. Next time I hear that argument, I'm coming back with mine. Okay, now I'm ready again. That's how it's done. It's no different than those of you who play sports. You know, I played some serious basketball in the college. Okay. So you get out there, you practice, you practice, you get the, you know, the first time you go out, you don't have it down, you have to practice. And you get the rest of the team and you all practice together and you work it out and you got the passage, you know where everything's happening. And so by the third, fourth game, you're moving a little better. Okay, it takes practice. And it's no different with leadership, but you have to decide now, do you wanna be somebody that makes a difference in other people's lives? Do you or do you not? And if you do, you have to become confident of who you are. So you can go home and tell your folks, you know, I know you took this position, but I think you're wrong. And have a, just a, you know, show them you have some information. You believe in this, this is who you are. And open your mind to the possibility that maybe there's another argument that you need to consider to change. But the process is, who are you? What do you believe? What matters to you? What's, what drives you? Where's the passion? Something you're willing to fight for and then you go and fight for it. That's what we do, because we're Americans. I want to add a few things that Michelle has asked me. I think we have some time here. And that is, this it says, women, I hear too much from women that they didn't get this job because they were a woman or somebody discriminated against them, or you're intimidated in the, in the office space, or whatever, whatever. I have no patience for any of that. I want to tell you a couple stories and then the lesson that I received from them. First thing is no attitude, no attitude. I hired people in the Reagan days. I remember this one girl, she felt very self-conscious because she did not have a college degree. And, and she was awesome. She was extremely detailed. She was exactly what I needed as my right arm. 
and I promoted her above others. And, and, and she goes, I don't know if I can do this. You know, I don't have a college degree. I said, I could care less about your college degree. I can teach you how to do it. Now, you just have to believe in yourself. She was excellent. She did everything I asked and more. And, and everybody respected her. She did a terrific job. But then years later, I started hiring. And, I, and I, that was my experience with most people. Sometimes they didn't fit into the job I had them, but I could see they were trying. They were really trying. And, and, it, and I found that this one poor young man, he, gee, every time he was in my accounting section, he's just screwing up all the deposits or whatever he is working on. And the immediate boss wanted to fire him. And I said, just, just relax. The guy's a great kid. He works hard. What? Well, I determined, I found out he didn't want to tell anybody he was dyslexic. So all those numbers <laughs> So what do you think is going to happen in the accounting department? It was the wrong place for him, but he didn't tell anyone. And, and it dawned on me. And I moved him into a place where he worked with people. He was exceptional. Just exceptional. All right? But, but I had this relationship with him where I respected him. I could see he was willing to do anything. Years later, when I was working on Pat's campaigns, several, several times I would hire people out of college, young women like yourselves. Well, I, I don't do receptionists. Well. That's funny, because I do. I, I'm the campaign manager, but if the phone's ringing, I answer it. So, well, I could do it for one month, but then I need to be moved to a policy position. A policy position, huh? Do you have any idea what Pat stands for? Have you read his books? I mean, what do you mean a policy position? But they, were, they, they thought they were too good. They had college degrees, and they were too good. And they had been taught, do not let them use you. As a woman, you should be right up there with the guys. Well, this person no experience in a campaign. You're lucky I let you through the front door. I mean, this is ridiculous. And, and you know, and I would say to everybody, I don't care who it was, if that phone rings three times and I end up answering it, there's going to be somebody paying for this because I'm the campaign manager, but we don't let our phones ring. Everybody answers them if the person who's supposed to is busy. Get it? I didn't need attitude. Remember, I asked this one person, this gal. I was, I always worked... 12, 15-hour days. I had three kids. I was a single mom. They were at home, so I'm getting into work after dropping them off and all kinds of things happening. Never took lunch. And I said, could you get me a sandwich? You want me to get your lunch? Yeah, I'm going to give you some. Just go get me a tuna sandwich. I'll do it today, but I don't do sandwiches. I don't do lunch. I was like, well, I'm not, I'm not putting you down. This is not, it's just I need help, okay? So I said, fine. I'm never asking that person to do anything again. Just, I'm too busy here for this. So I asked a guy. Next time I went into this back room and they were processing money, could you get me a sandwich? Do you mind go down and get? Every day after that, he showed up at my office. Do you need a sandwich today? Now, who do you think I was going to promote the next time something opened up? I had somebody who was willing to do anything to make this team stay together and do well. Okay? That's who I picked. Now I'll tell you. Attitude is a bad thing. It, it, it just, you should be part of a team where you do anything, and you will shine. One last story along those lines. How am I doing on time? I don't want to go throw you guys too off. All right. Well, somebody yell if I'm way over. Um, another story. Michelle loves this story. I was, I had a master's degree in mathematics from McGill. I had spent a year in an accounting firm in Sydney, Australia year and a half, and I was now working for the Reagan campaign as an accountant. And I would have to do reports at night. They were due the next morning in 50 states, so I'd have to get finish the report, balance an accounting report, all contributions, all expenditures. But we didn't have computers in those days, okay? So I would get it all ready, and then I'd have to get 50 copies, 
and collated, and they're, you know, they're a couple hundred pages, collated and out the door the next morning. Overnight express. Okay. Well, I would be there by myself at one in the morning. So the Xerox machine would go down. We had a 24-hour policy. I'd call the guy up. We were downtown, D.C. Uh, offices. And I'd say, hey, Joe, you need to get out here and fix the computer. He says, babe, it's 1 a.m. I said, what do you want from me? He said, go to the Xerox machine. He would say, you see this thing that says number one? Open that. Do this. See number two? Pull this. See anything? Yeah, piece of paper. Take that out. Do this. I learned within about six weeks how to fix that Xerox machine. I could have been hired by Xerox. Okay, I had that thing down, <clears throat> and everybody knew it. When anyone had a problem, they'd say, babe, can you come and fix this? I'd go in there, doo -doo, open all these doors, there'd be work. Well, one day, I was in my office, and I heard this commotion. The press secretary was out there, and he had the press coming in, and he needed this re press release done now, and the machine was down. And he was, some nasty language going on out there. And I was, this was oblivious to me. I'm just in there working my accounting. And, and he said, this, I need this thing now. The press is coming in and then whatever. And so they said, well, you might want to talk to the gal in there, Buchanan. And so they came by and said, are you Buchanan? Yeah. Do you know how to make this thing work? I said, yeah. He said, I need copies. I said, go back to your office. I'll have it there in a minute. So I went in, had that thing working, took copies, walked down. They thought I was the smartest person on that campaign. Forget the master's degree. I could fix the Xerox machine. Okay? That was a, I was a competent person in the eyes of the political world, and I was in the accounting section. So I gained enormous, enormously from knowing how to fix a Xerox machine. You see my point. You're part of a team. Be part of the team. Look around. See what they need. Another quick story. Ask for what you want. I cannot tell you the number of women I have talked to have said, you know, everybody takes care of guys, there's great networks out there, they hire them, and we're just out here by ourselves struggling. Oh my gosh, this is so much nonsense. Do you know, a guy goes into a bar and he comes out with six references. Why? Because he goes in, he shares a drink, and he says, you know, I'm looking, I'm a photographer, just got into town. And someone else says, hey, I know a photographer. And next thing you know, they're talking and he's got some contacts and the next, and women, I asked the same lady whose boyfriend had all these contacts who was telling me the woeful story, and I said, how many people have you told that you're looking for a job? Well, you didn't tell anybody. Well, what do you think? They're just going to figure this out? But they, they, they're hesitant. Uh, how did I become Treasurer of the United States? After fighting for the title of Treasurer of the, of the campaign, it was now 1980, and the President had won. President Reagan had won the, camp, the election. I had to go in for a heart operation. So somebody said, look, over a transition where they pick and choose people for different positions in the administration for the two months before he takes office, called me and said, babe, we want to take care of you. We know you have this heart operation, so we want to take care of you. What position do you want in the administration? Give us number one, number two, and number three. So I said, I want to be treasurer of the United States. Two, I want to be treasurer of the United States. And three, I want to be treasurer of the United States. And he said, this isn't a joke, Bay, because if you don't get that, and you two months from now come out from this operation, that job's taken, and then there's going to be very few jobs left. And I said, and if I tell you a number two, I will not be the Treasury of the United States, because I'm young, and they'll put someone else right in there and say, Bay can have it four years from now. 
I said, no, I have been with Reagan. There's not another woman out there who's been working with Reagan as long as I have. I have the accounting background. The treasurer usually went to a woman, wasn't required, but usually did, so it wasn't um, preposterous that I was pursuing this, and I knew I could do the job. So I said, I want that job. I came out from the operation, recovered in January. I went down to transition, and they said, you're in competition with a Bush person. He has said, Reagan gets what they want, except for 10 people of mine, I want to get whatever they want. I want you to take care of them. You all are number one for all the rest of the jobs. Well, his Iowa gal wanted to be Treasurer of the United States. So, of course, at that stage, I went, I'm not losing to a Bush person. And I raced over to, to uh, Ed Meese, and I said, I need to meet with the President-elect. He said, what about Bay? I said, because I am going to be Treasurer of the United States. I deserve this. I'm qualified, and I want that job. I don't want to lose to a Bush person. Get it? And, uh, and he said, I'll talk to the president-elect tonight and sing him. So he did, and I went back the next day. Hi, Ed. How did the conversation go? He said, you'll be the next Treasurer of the United States. That's how I got that job. I did not wait around for somebody to say, you know, Bay would be an excellent Treasurer of the United States. My suggestion to every one of you is to look around wherever you're working and say, what is the next position here? What would I like to be? I might maybe not be qualified yet, or maybe I am. And wait for that opening. And then you go right to your boss and you say, see that opening? I want it. Now, you may not get it, but if you're qualified and he knows that you're competent and you're part of the team and you're doing a great job, he says at that stage, okay, you didn't get it, but I got your name, I see where you're going, you got the next opening. Or he says, no, sorry, because he loves having you work for him, whatever reason. And you say, fine, and you start looking elsewhere. You have to determine yourself, is there openings? Is there upward mobility in this place? Then you have to let them know you want these jobs. Do not wait around for them to find and discover you. Be bold, just like I talked to you about being leaders. Be bold about what you believe and be bold about taking care of yourselves. Do not wait for others. Too many women do. I don't know if this is going to leave us with any, any kind of time for questions and answers because I wasn't keeping an eye. But I want to thank you all very, very much. You've been a wonderful audience, and I love always being with you and hope to see you again. Thanks very, very much. Do we have a few minutes? Good, good, good. I just, I talked really fast, hoping I'd have time, but I lost track of the time. Um, okay, great, great. There is time for questions. This is sometimes the best part. Ask anything. Just because I didn't talk about it doesn't mean you can't ask. Ask any question you like. Uh, thank you for joining us this afternoon. Um, so you mentioned that when you ask for something, you might not always get it. Could you speak to an opportunity that you really, really wanted but then you didn't get and how you overcame that and moved on and then were successful later on? That's a very, very good question. Um, I, I can tell you some that are close to that. Um, in the campaign, Bill Casey, this is the general election 1980, Reagan, and Bill Casey was um, in charge of the campaign at that stage, had been for many months, and he and I had a, a very good relationship. Um, and I used to always give him my reports about how, where the finances, if there's any money to pull here, put more in media, whatever. I was in charge of all the money. And there were some people in the campaign that decided someone else should have that job, that there should be, I should have a boss and that that boss would go to the meetings. And one of my friends, who later became part of the cabinet, called me and said, there's a press conference this afternoon, and they're going to name this person as your boss. 
Now, they had never told this to me before, and so they were just going to announce it, and I was going to answer to him. This was not settling with me at all, but they could do what they wanted. And, um, and I didn't think this fellow was smarter than me. I thought I knew my numbers better, I was quicker at it, and I had a good relationship with Bill Casey. So I marched down that, that was the morning of the press conference, one o'clock press conference, it's like 10 o'clock now. I marched down and told his assistant, I need to see him. Is he available? And she's like, yeah. I walked in and I said, okay, Bill. Now, Bill was my father's age. It took me a long time to call him Bill. I used to call him Mr. Casey, and I thought, how can I be someone that he trusts when I'm calling him Mr. Casey? I need to be Bill, you know? So I worked on that at night. I used to look in the mirror, Bill, how you doing, Bill? Hey, Bill, you know, because I wanted to be, you know, but I was 30 at the time, 31, and, and he was my dad's age easily. He must have been in his 70s, and just extraordinarily accomplished and brilliant, brilliant man, Bill Casey. So when I said, Bill, I understand there's going to be a press conference this afternoon, and there's a couple appointments that affect me. You have the authority to do anything you want. I, I, you don't have to get me to approve anything. This is your campaign. You do what you think's best. All I ask is that if you put anyone between you and me, that they are smarter than me. And he just looked at me. I said, that's all I ask, that they're smarter than me. He said, uh, Bay, yeah, about that press conference. Uh, it's not going to happen that way anymore. And he said, I'll take care of this. And that afternoon, this fellow was not named to that position, much to his total amazement and the other people on senior staff. They all waited. All these other appointments, all these other different people coming into position, his was omitted. And Bill said to me, I'll be getting on the Concord leaving immediately after it's a Friday, and they won't be able to stop me or turn it around. It'll be a done deal. And he never became my boss. Now, I had to make certain I fought for that position. And I could have lost it, and I would not going to give up the job. Um, I'd have continued working as best I could under the circumstances. But um, as for me not getting something, I usually ended up fighting, and I can't, you know, I can't recall any time that happened. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I, I mean, disappointments occur a lot. Um, and, uh, and sometimes I just backed away. I remember this one time I, I thought I should be the campaign manager. And um, they started using someone else. And I just thought, you know, this thing's going to blow up in no time. And I just backed away, backed away, backed away. And like, went and wrote a book. By the time I finished writing my book, they were calling me. But, I, you know, the, the, ro the it was not ever the same relationship. Um, and you just, you have to get over that. You know, I, I, like even now in my business, there's sometimes I have clients who, for some strange reason, decide to, to just fire me or not fire me, just say they, they've decided to go a different route or something. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, well, I don't know what's going on in their lives. It may not have anything to do with me, or maybe they're mad at something. It's nothing I did. I've still got the relationship, but you just, goodbye, you know, you goodbye. I don't know what's wrong with people. Sometimes they're not, not as loyal, not as honest, not as upfront, don't have the integrity. And so you just, you, you have to learn to move to the next step. It takes a couple of days. But then you just say, okay, whatever, whatever. People have free choice. Doesn't mean it's good choice. But then you do your best for the, the next. Is there any other questions? One here, we have time? Go right ahead. Something you just said when you, excuse me, sorry. 
Uh, something you just said when you answered that question really uh, struck me. When you were talking through your presentation, um, you know, you said like attitude is bad, um, but I noticed that you carry yourself with a very, you know, firm um, personality, which is clearly different than attitude. And you just said, you know, you couldn't think of really any losses where you had to recover from, um, but you did say there were disappointments. Do you think that your outlook on life where you look at um, possibly minor setbacks as a disappointment and something to build from uh, instead of losses has uh, helped you uh, go forward? A excellent question. And as I've reflected even further on her question, I'll tell you the greatest um, disappointment, de de definitely a setback. Um, I'm a traditionalist. Uh, and I believe so much in the family. And I was raised by, you know, a, a, a father's very, very active Catholic, nine children, family is everything. And I ended up um, divorced uh, with two and a half children. I was separated when my baby was, when I was still pregnant. And so I had a four, a two, and I was pregnant. And he was gone. And it was devastating because I kept thinking about the kids and not having a father in the house and how important this is. It, it was the toughest thing. I mean, it was something I never imagined could happen to me because I was ready to do everything for the family. You know, whatever needed to be done, I was going to do it. You know, so it never happened to me. And, and it did. And, and so I had to come to grips with that. And it was very hard because um, at first I had to personally say, look, I, I remember this girl came up to me within months of that happening, and I said, I hadn't seen her since high school. And she said, ugh. I'm, I've just failed, I'm divorced. And I thought, that you can't be. You cannot be failed when you're a single mom. You can't see yourself as failed. Something happened, whatever happened, it's yesterday. Now you are a single mom, and you best be a proud, thrilled single mom because they're counting on you. You can't go around and say, oh, I'm such a failure. What good is that? You're not a failure. Right, right now, you're a single mom. You're not going to be a failure. You're determined. Not, this is something I can control. I couldn't control the other one. But this is something. I, and so I threw myself into being. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> the kids will tell you that part. Um, and, and, the, and, and that. So it is attitude there. And it's outlook. I had to look forward. I couldn't look back. I couldn't bring all that baggage forward with me. No. I had to get on this train. And this is now my turn. And it, I am going to succeed. I will figure out a way. I will fight for these kids. I had to take, you know, I, I had to turn down many great job opportunities um, because I wasn't going to be home at night. It would be too many hours away. And I had to do things where I controlled it. I could be at the class play. I could do this. So it was much more kind of put together jobs, you know, two and three jobs kind of thing where I was in control. Um, so it changed my life. But I'll tell you, my relationship with those three boys, nothing better. And, and I am very proud uh, that I was able to completely put them first in my life because I knew they were number one. And to, to say, look, whatever happened, happened. I don't need to badmouth him. I need to be positive and give them a chance, f exposed to as many good families with fathers and mothers so that they don't have that lack of understanding of what it takes. I did everything. I wrote a book about it at the end so that other single moms. So yes, you are right. You've got to understand. You are not perfect. You are going to screw up. You are going to make mistakes, whether it's debating an issue you believe in and getting trounced at the debate and thinking, I didn't even know what to say. I'm terrible. Nope. We're all terrible when we begin. First time you're on that basketball court, you were not good, okay? So get back out. Get back out. Get back out. Keep trying it. Pretty soon you're just glib. You know, oh, I've heard this three times. I know the answer. Boop. What's next? You know, I know that. I got that one. 
throw another one at me, you know, and you'll learn more and more and you become passionate. The key is not, the key in, in who you become is not the numbers. It's not, I believe in cutting taxes because if you cut them this much and this percentage and that percentage, what makes you who you are is your passion. And the passion doesn't come from numbers. It comes from a clear belief that this is the right direction. That abortion is never right. It's never right. So I know I'm on the right path. I might not have all the answers, but I'm fighting for that unborn child every time. All right? That's the passion. So I mess up sometimes. So I mislead. So I, I get the numbers wrong. Who cares? You're going to come back. And, and you can influence others. You can let people know. She was so clear about this. She was so certain that it was a child. She said it in a math class. I thought she was a nutcase. But two years from now, you save a child. You don't need to know about it but you're making a difference in people's lives. It's about how you present yourself. You go into an office, you say, you know, all this nonsense about this Russian collusion, and they go, it's not nonsense, it's really happening. Well, let me tell you, it's not really happening, okay? Boom, boom, boom. Or you laugh and say, good luck with that one. You know what I mean? You, you can make a sense of humor about it. They let people know who you are. Don't be afraid. That's the key, and the only way you're not going to be afraid is if you talk about it, and say it once, say it twice, and say it to people on the other side. Who cares if you disagree with them? I've got great conservative liberal friends. They're just wrong, I tell them that. You know, <laughs> you know you're a great person, enjoy your company, but you know, you got so screwed up when it comes to issues. How'd that happen? You know, your mother dropped you on your head or something? I don't know. <laughs> you, you, you make some fun of it, but they will respect you because you stand for something, and that influences people, that changes people. Other questions? I think we're finished with the question and answer section. Okay, very good. So thank you. Thank you very much for, for your, your good questions and your great attendance. Thanks very much.